0: hey welcome to the default Alive podcast i'm corey and i'm chris and this is our audio documentary of our journeys building profitable internet businesses and so if this is your first time listening you can learn more about us and get up to speed by starting at episode number one but if you're regular welcome back All right, what's up, everyone? Uh, no Corey today; he is out, so uh, unfortunately, you, you're you're stuck with me today. But fortunately, I am with Derek Reimer, uh who, if you are a frequent listener of this podcast, we have mentioned him many times. Uh, he is the founder of Savikal, and he is Corey's
1: one and only consulting client. I'm very <laughs> jealous of that. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, I'm I'm glad I've managed to. Uh... To keep the role interesting enough for uh, Corey to keep keep me around. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I know. I know
0: he's had many many offers um, from other people looking to work with him. I believe your co-host of, of your show Art of Product, um, Ben Ornstein, proposed something to him. Yeah, I've tried many times. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're you're the lucky one there.
1: Woohoo! Well,
0: I feel I feel <laughs> lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm a big listener of the art of product podcast. And one thing that I always find interesting, and I don't know if this is the same for you, uh, when I talk to someone who I listen to there, especially if it's like a weekly show, um, it's, it's very strange. Cause I feel like I know you, but this yeah. is really our first actual conversation ever <laughs> yeah besides some emails and whatnot so it's always an interesting experience
1: same you know I, I always experience that too i've um yeah occasionally guest on some of the other podcasts in our space like this and um it really does shortcut that kind of that process like a lot of my uh, family doesn't i don't think they actually listen to my podcast but i have some friends that do and um <clears throat> And like we, every time we hang out, like we're pretty much, they're pretty much caught up on what's happening with the business so we can like talk about things and like don't have to catch up on context. I found that like at MicroConf too, like people listen to the podcast. Mm. It's like, oh, we can just, we can just dive right into meaty stuff Then we don't have to, we can skip all the, all the intros and stuff. So it's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Especially if people are like, oh, you're having this problem and uh, here's how I've solved that before. Like that's always super cool. Yep. Totally. Is there anything, well, while we're on this topic, is there any, um, I don't know, since since you mentioned you listen to this show and you work with Corey, obviously, Mm-hmm. is it strange to, I mean, I guess there's an understanding of like, he wants to do his own thing and the consulting with you is sort of a means to an end for him right now is, yeah. what is that like from your perspective?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's sort of like the... The arrangement from the get go. I kind of I knew what Corey's goals were in, uh, you know, leaving Bear metrics and going out on his own. And I I identify a lot with the um, the kind of position that he's in and really wanting to like hustle and and do his own thing and be be independent. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I feel like I'm very much in tune with with kind of that that uh, that phase that he's going through, and you know, just glad to be able to um, to provide some some you know, stopgap income in between and, uh, and work together. And I mean, I'm ho- obviously I, I hope to be able to work with Corey for a long time, but we'll just, we'll see what's in the cards for, uh, <laughs> for timeline for swipe files. And, uh, and uh, if we can keep things, keep things interesting enough, uh, you know, we'd love to have Corey around for, for a long time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I've worked with a few people now who, um, have their own businesses on the side as well. And, you know, there, there is, of course, they always have that pull, but it is nice that they have those skills, too, to understand early stage business and, yeah. um, you know, to be a self-starter and, and not need a ton of direction. So that's always great as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of those. um It's like it's hard to get both of those qualities at the same time, like, like especially at the phase that, that I was at when I started working with Corey. We had... I just had, like, $1,000 in MRR, and there was a lot of potential, but, like, still a lot of risk, and I was spreading myself super thin. And so to have, like, someone who can kind of think at a founder level and be really self-directed on on projects and stuff was exactly what I needed. But I also know, knew that, like, one, it was a rare find to find someone who's, like, at, just at the right place where they're willing to, mm-hmm. to work with somebody else and not just purely on their own stuff. And um, and also like that's always the challenge, right? Is like retaining. It's hard to retain someone who's really entrepreneurial because they have they have the skill set and the drive to to be fully independent. So um, that's sort of what I that's what I was with uh, with Rob and Drip. I sort of started out started working with Rob when I reached the end of my line on my own independent projects, and like I mm-hmm. launched a couple things and did made a bunch of mistakes and felt like um, I was sort of, like I didn't have an immediate dire need to go work for somebody because I was just out of college and had low expenses, <laughs> still living at home and stuff. But um, but I was sort of like, just mentally I was struggling with the position I was in of like feeling like I wasn't getting traction with stuff. And so I was like, maybe I'll go build websites for local companies or something because I still have these skills. I could, I could do that, you know, do some consulting or something. And then that's when Rob approached me and he was like, hey, well, why don't we work together on some stuff? And then, and then that kind of, the rest is history from there. Yeah, that's awesome. It's wild to
0: me that, from what I understand, you never had a full-time job, right, after college?
1: I, um, well, actually did for, for a very brief period of time, but it was not in technology. It was, um, okay. it was with a kind of a family friend who had owned a small business. Um, he brokered uh, landscape products so like bark, sawdust, those types of things. And he had all these relationships with nurseries and sawmills. Like he he started out his career working for like a sawmill. And then he was like, he was just a quintessential sales guy. Like that was really, the whole business was built around his personality and his ability to sell. And then we, uh, my mom actually worked there too. Like we, cause we were family friends with them and she did, she like did their books. And when she started working with them, uh, he had like five people in the office who were just like, doing a bunch of paper shuffling and it was necessary but like they hadn't really computerized things and uh and so they had like they literally had like a physical order book that they would pass around and like one person was blocked they couldn't do their job until like they got the binder they had the orders and then they could process do their own processing (laughs) it was just insane so i remember when i was in when i was in high school i like helped set up like a little server in in his uh office and networked there like a little a little LAN network of computers and i put like the accounting software on that uh on that computer and then everyone could access it at the same time and sadly like he let go like three people from the office like it went from oh, having no. having like <laughs> i mean in due time it was like there was not enough work yeah. to do because it just like we increased efficiency by 300 percent and he was just like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna let these people go but um I mean I think they found jobs later on so everything worked out yeah. but um, but that was that was fun like it was a really good experience to um, I definitely got really comfortable like getting on the phone and talking to people and dealing with like sort of stressful real-time situations um, that come up in business you know like a vendor calls and mm-hmm. they're like hey we've got we've got a truck in this area of, of the state and we really need a back lo- backhaul load like can you help me out? And I'd be like, "Well, let me see what I can do." And I would call a couple customers and see if they need a load, so we can, like, ship something. So it was it was sort of fast paced and like good, like just fundamental business skills um, that I feel like translated in some indirect way to running my own business. But obviously, the nature of the work was um, quite different. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's that's. I mean, one thing that I've seen as a solo founder, and I'm sure you've experienced as well, is the challenge in doing all the jobs, whether it's uh, sales or marketing or development or customer support. And so to have those experiences, I know for myself, um, it was working in, uh, working for like consulting firms back in the day where we Mm -hmm. were interfacing with clients all day and learning how to uh, be in meetings like that, sales meetings. Um, And so to have those foundational skills, I think is just so important as a, especially as a solo founder.
1: Yeah, yeah, agreed. And I think that's, I don't know about you, but like I have felt that's part of the reason why I enjoy the work is the ability to kind of touch a lot of the different areas of the business. Like I get, I get a lot of fulfillment from kind of being able to wrap my arms around all of these responsibilities, but then of course it doesn't scale and that becomes its own stressor and, and like eventually could be a recipe for burnout. So it's like, that's the, that's the tricky part, right? Is figuring out when to start peeling off some of those responsibilities, how to loop people in, which I think that's some of the stuff that's on your mind, right? we were talking about.
0: Yeah, totally. It's uh, another thing that's been real interesting for me listening to Art of Product is our businesses have kind of been moving along in the same stages at the same time. Uh, So I know uh, a few months ago you were going through trying to figure out, um, how to hire someone for support and what that would look like and what parts they would take over. And yeah. I was basically going through the same thing for JetBoost at the same time. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I know, uh, you've had, you've, you've definitely had more experience than I have in the past as far as yeah, learning how to peel off some of those layers and, and delegate, uh, the roles and, um, yeah. Curious what has worked well for you or maybe what's been difficult there.
1: Yeah. I I mean I found like learned this in my nature that I have trouble delegating, which I think and some not all founders are that way, <laughs> but I I, I sort I'm of I'm totally have, that way. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like I I I also can appreciate like I really want to empower a team and like I I get a lot of joy out of seeing other people succeed on a task that maybe I would have otherwise done myself, but like watching other people like be able to accomplish a task, I love that. So on the mm, one hand, yeah. like I, sh- I feel like I should be better at it, but then on the other hand, it's really hard to let go of the, just knowing that it's going to get done right, right out of the gate. Um, and, and like, so I, I used to have very like strong opinions. I think we're as developers, we tend to have strong opinions about how things should be done. Um, you know, and I, I think I started out my career sort of Um, you know, learning the fundamentals and then coming up with my kind of opinions about like, yep, this is the, this is the quote unquote right way to do this. And then struggled to like, uh, accept that, that like, if I hand this task off, someone may come up with a completely different approach to it. But fundamentally, as long as it's like, there are important parts and there are unimportant parts of Uh, ultimately in the grand scheme and i think i got i was a little too mired in the the minutiae and the details of making sure things are done in the exact way that i wanted them so it's been for me it's been a journey of trying to trying to pull apart like what are the what are the really important parts and what parts are like left to the uh, you know as an exercise for the implementer um Mm -hmm. but we we um so at drip we were sort of in a position where we were c- constrained on budget and so we couldn't afford to hire senior developers out of the gate. We were sort of funded by cash flow from a different app and I was drawing a small salary and I think Rob might have had a small salary too, but like we didn't we didn't have a ton of extra margin there. So we could afford a couple junior developers and actually in that process we were our office was in this kind of building where alongside our, as another part of this kind of building, they had a training, little training school. And so we could basically sponsor a class and train developers, um, on our stack. Yeah. (laughs) And so, so we did that. Like we, we ran a class, I taught a rails class, um, like a six week or eight week class. And, uh, and, and then like started out with 15 people in there and probably about about 60% of the people dropped out at various points along the way and didn't stick with it. But a couple of people were left. And we basically got, as part of the sponsoring the class, you get first dibs on, like, making offers to the, the people that showed promise. And wow. So, yeah. So we did that. I, I hired We hired two junior developers. One was a, he was an adjunct adjunct professor of philosophy at a local university (laughs) and the other guy was a former uh brewmaster for for like a chain of breweries making a career change both of them and so uh it was it was cool because like i got to train them in the way that, like, we did things, like, I got to infuse a an appreciation for test-driven development, for example, which was something I thought was, you know, I still feel like it's important, and I really valued that at the time, and so I've seen other places struggle with, like, a, a shifting culture where they maybe have hired a bunch of developers, and just none of them have ever written tests before, and so then going back and trying to, like, implement, like, a testing policy when you have people who just... We're never bought in philosophically to the importance of that. Like it, that can be really difficult. So things like that, that I got to infuse in, from the get go. Um, but on the flip side, obviously it, it took a lot of, took a lot of time and effort and energy to, to train them. And so I, I took a big productivity hit during that time. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the thing that still concerns me. Like right now I would probably be looking to hire with Savvy Cal. I think my first hire is going to be a bit more senior than that. But, uh, I still recognize there's going to be there's a lot of institutional knowledge that's in my head and that's just like not very well documented. like it's just sort of there. Um, and so there's gonna be a, a productivity hit in getting someone up to speed. Um, and uh, do, remind me, have you hired a develop like do you have a developer working alongside you right now? Yeah, so
0: I've worked <clears throat> with two different developers so far uh, with jetBoost. the The latest one is only a couple weeks in. So we're still kind of going through the onboarding phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I've really struggled with is like you said, a lot of the the knowledge is in my head. And so figuring out how to document that, how to share that. Um, yeah. But also maybe a, a willingness to give up some of the core development. Uh, so uh, especially with the first developer that I hired, it was much easier to just have him work on things that, were, you know, customer uh customer issues that were coming in frequently but weren't so core to the product, so things like yeah. uh I don't know, being able to add your company address and um, you know, VAT ID and all that to the invoices. Yeah. Like I'm so glad we shipped that and we never have to deal with that request again, but that's definitely obviously not a core part of Jetboost. Um yeah. And as I think about, uh, so the business is almost two years now. And as I think about it continuing to, to grow and uh, like I can't be the only one that can build the core features for forever. And so mm-hmm. crossing that chasm has has definitely been difficult for me so far.
1: What do you feel like your goal right now in hiring like adding to the development team, this is, some, this is an interesting line of thinking that was shared with me recently. It's like, is your goal to move faster or to spread the work out among, among people? Yeah. I love that question. And I hate that the answer I want to say is both. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's not I think the that's, right answer. Honestly, I think that's kind of where I come down on it, too. Honestly, it's like a little bit of both, to be honest. Like, I resonate with that, like, sort of like de-risking the business in a way that you don't want Mm-hmm. You, you don't want the bus factor to be so big. Like, like if you, right. Chris gets hit by a bus, like the whole business is toast, you know, like right. that's not ideal. Uh, but then, yeah, I think there's, I think we're, I, I hear it in your, um, in your updates and stuff. I think there's, you're very similar to me, I think in like, you have some ambition to grow this thing. You don't want it to just kind of stay stagnant, <laughs> you know, so there's probably yeah. an element of move faster there too. Yeah.
0: And I think what's interesting about Jetboost is there's like, I'm, I'm constantly uh, oscillating between, you know, we should just kind of keep the product with the features that it has, uh, improve those, uh, you know, so some of the main features are like giving people the ability to uh, filter, filter uh, collections on the Webflow site or search through them. Uh so one way of enhancing those ex- existing features is to um build say like people are always asking for like analytics as as part of that or um, and I've been sort of hesitant to go down that route because mm-hmm. I would rather just keep building more plugins for Webflow and allow people to do more on top of Webflow. Mm-hmm. To me that's more interesting, but it also feels a little bit riskier uh because now you're, you've are you got a larger code base, you've got more support for the more features that you add. Uh, I'm curious how you balance that, because I know you've been shipping a ton of new features for SavvyCal. Yeah. How do you think about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's sort of a question around um, kind of scope of responsibility, like how sort of product roadmap stuff, which is very much an art <laughs> an art form, yeah. not, not so much a science, right? Um, because, yeah, it's like y- you have to sort of have to draw the, draw the boundaries where you're going to draw them. And, but so it's like, I don't know. I, I like to rely on two kind of two things. First and foremost, my own like sense of, uh, based on all my understanding of the market and what they want, you know, do I feel like this is something that's really key, really critical to, to offer, or should this, or is it not that important, you know, and that can be informed by, people requesting things like if if it's if it's getting requested a lot do you feel like this is something that generalizes well across the customer base or is this sort of a niche thing is there maybe a maybe a hacky alternative that you can offer of like well you could dump you know you could pipe data into zapier and into a uh, a different system and and build graphs or something like that you know mm-hmm. and maybe that's enough um i one thing i do have to push myself on is And I think a lot of developer founders have to do this too. Is like being willing to accept a a non pure solution sometimes. (laughs) Like as long as it's Mm solved. Like if it's a really niche problem that that only a couple customers have, um, can you offer something up that's like, well, it's not it's not a very clean pure solution, but it's enough for them, and it's it's at least enough to get for them to get by and still be happy. And then gives you more time to evaluate, like how important is this feature really? Um, so, so then that can be kind of a, if it's still a question mark in your head as to whether it's worth doing. I mean, obviously, if it's a big initiative that's that you kind of see as like a heavy feature, like this is going to require ongoing maintenance and a big initial build out, um, then you you should have some compelling evidence that that like this is this is really something that customers need to to really derive value, you know.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I I've actually been going through um this week and doing a number of different customer interviews. And it's so funny because and I don't know if this is just uh the developer side of me like you always want to just figure it out uh you know, almost in a vacuum like oh, I can mm-hmm. just sort of figure out which features we should build and uh as soon as I start talking to customers, it's like Oh, like all of a sudden, like the insights are coming in like crazy. Like, yeah. oh, what I thought was important is actually not that important to people. What yeah. I thought is like, uh, you know, a very hacky part of our system. They're like, oh, that's not a big deal for us. Uh, so, yeah, that's 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 the only way really to understand, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how people are getting value out of your product and where you can deliver more values from actually talking to
1: them (laughs) yeah because i've been coming i'm becoming aware like so in the early early stages of a product where it's like it's really new and you don't have much if people are willing to give it a try they're usually going to dump a whole bunch of like it needs to have like this whole long list of things in order for me to be able to use it so you have like a lot of learning a lot of information and then i found like the learning kind of some in one sense it slows down a little bit if you're not deliberate about trying to trying to go out and and get more information. So like right now, you know, we're growing at a modest rate with SavvyCal and like like people are converting and but people are also churning and that's starting to really, um, really grate on me a little bit. Like why are people leaving? <laughs> and I have yeah. like, this is something I'm working on optimizing right now because I don't have, I have like one email that goes out after someone cancels and it's like has a very low response rate. And so I want to know like, why did you cancel? Are, do you just not need the tool anymore, or is are we deficient in some important way that you can't use it anymore? And mm-hmm. um, and it's so it's like the the scarier thing is almost like this the feedback that people have for you, but they're not sharing with you, and you're not hearing. And I feel like that you can reach that point where like your product is pretty mature and it solves a lot of it's satisfactory for a lot of people, but maybe there's a growing percentage of people who are just like not converting or they're signing up and then canceling because it's not fulfilling everything they need and um and so that's where i think it's really good to do those to do customer interviews i feel like i probably don't do enough of that that's honestly a big reason why i want i think it's good to get help on the development front if you're kind of the solo founder doing all the stuff it's like you need to open Mm -hmm. up time for that to happen um and if you're focused on product alone then you know that's going to languish a little bit yeah
0: i've noticed exactly what you said where the In the beginning, the learning was so easy. It it was coming so rapidly uh, from early adopter types uh, who are very willing to give their input into the product. And like you said, mentioned the deficiencies and all that. And the roadmap for Jetboost in the beginning was so straightforward. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, people are struggling to install it onto their site. Okay, we need to make the process better. People like being able to search, but they also want to be able to filter. Okay, we need to build filters. Uh, And I think as the product has matured, but then also as I've been doing less and less support myself, it's like that's where the gap starts to grow between you and the customers. And uh, it it really took me like three months to realize, oh, I'm not really in touch with people the way I used Mm -hmm. to be. And that's why I'm sort of struggling with direction and roadmap and all of that
1: yeah yeah
0: Yeah.
1: i think it's like um with drip we had the advantage of we were using the product ourselves we were sort of heavily dogfooding it which meant Mm -hmm. that like and and we were building a tool that like we had rob had a ton of experience doing email marketing so it was like he kind of knew like these are the things that people really need and honestly like these are the areas where i um you know I'd see deficiencies in other tools and I know it'd be super like people would be all over this if we built this this feature and solved this problem that other tools aren't addressing. And so that's a big that's a luxury to have like that kind of deep, um, you know, you felt the visceral pain yourself and you, you go to, to build the solution for it and you're pulling other people along with you who are also have that same problem. Um, do you feel like you have a good sense of like the like being able to put yourself in your customer's shoes to figure out like. Like no, I, I've built this thing before. I've I've struggled with like adding this piece of functionality to a site before, and I know that like I feel have a high degree of confidence that this is the thing that would that people need. Like, do you do you feel that?
0: To some degree, yes, and to some degree, no. So, I've gone all in on Webflow. Like, I'm a huge Webflow user, a huge mm-hmm. fan of the product. I, I think it's it's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing tool for building websites. And so I have a very deep understanding now, uh, which I didn't before starting Jetboost as to, uh, you know, the, the edges of the product, some of the limitations, uh, and also what is possible and not possible as far as integrating with the product. But where I have less insight is to, and, and this is why I'm talking to people is the say Webflow freelancer or Webflow agencies who are working with clients day in and day out, building Mm -hmm. them websites on top of Webflow and the conversations that they're having with their clients, as far as client asks for this and sorry, either Webflow can't do that, or, uh, we're going to have to get our developer involved so we can build something custom for you. Um, so those type of things. I'm not seeing day to day unless I'm being very proactive about uh talking to people who are using Webflow.
1: Mhm. Yep. Yep. That's right. where I think yeah, so that's, that's that's a good good to have that feedback, feed feedback loop kind of going yeah. all the time and yeah, that's good. Yeah.
0: So, uh one thing I'm curious about with your experience at Drip is you know, what's really interesting to me is is you basically completed the entire startup journey where right. you went from uh, you know, just the two of you to growing a small team to then, uh, eventually selling it to uh, a much larger company specifically on the, I guess on the tech side of things, uh, what did that look like for you going from, you know, building this initial product to all of a sudden paying customers and then, uh, I imagine paying customers at scale, uh, Mm -hmm. how, you know, I I feel like it's a little bit difficult to understand the problems that you're going to encounter as the business grows and scales um, from like tech and infrastructure side, if you've never done that before. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, so, Drip was a particularly high scale type of application because we um, basically from day one we're taking in analytics data. So people were mm-hmm. people to install the snippet on their website and then. We would get kind of data flowing back every time someone visited their website. So we had sort of this this data that we were ingesting, and we were trying to then present it in a way and let people key automations off of it um, in kind of real time and, like, being able to look at a profile and see an entire activity history. So there was a lot of, like, a lot of large tables that with a lot of heavy background processing, um, accessing these tables and, you know, processing events, triggering automations, which triggered other work. And and that sort of was, um, like, from pretty early on, we were having to contend with that. And I mm. was not – like, I had very little experience doing – building high-scale systems. I still don't have a lot of experience doing it, to be honest. Like, um, and so <laughs> the first thing that, uh, you know, it, that took way more time than I would have wanted it to. It, so I sort of was, like, just – I kind of ground myself down like really, really hard, but I was pretty young. And so I like, I was willing to work many, many hours. Like I worked a ton during that phase. (laughs) It was not sustainable. I probably wouldn't have the energy to do it, uh, do it again at the pace that we did it. You know, um, we were pretty scrappy. So we're like, it was just me and Rob for the first nine months or so. And, um, and yeah, sort of just like Felt like we were on the always on the verge of the next fire happening, but like we couldn't really. It was hard to anticipate. That's that's the tricky part about systems that that are scaling. Um, is it's really difficult to know where what are the areas that are going to start to break down. Like, and sometimes there's simple solutions like just adding some indexes on a database table or something can can like make all the difference. And other times it's like. It's like, ah, oh, we're, we're dealing with like queue backups and there's a whole, you know, complex sequence of, of um, things that we're running in the background and like, how do we optimize that? Well, we can just start like trying to analyze stack traces and, and performance down at a granular level and then work on those and you still run up against limitations. So I think our, our general strategy was like, um, we like brought in some specific help for for our database pretty early on, so like we we got a DBA um, as contractor and consulted with him a bit um, because that was an area where like really we were all out of our depth on how to make that part of it scale. Um, mm. So pulling in like a specialist contractor was kind of big. Um, and then I think I'm trying to think if if I would have revised the way that we the way that we kind of grew because. It's like I couldn't have really... It would have been difficult to plant the knowledge in my head that I didn't have at the time, you know? So, <laughs> right, so right. like, I'm not sure how I would have done it differently, but we sort of um, were able to get away with throwing more money at the problem than than um, time. Like, we, thankfully, were able to get some traction, so we had revenue to play with, and it sort of was going up over time once we broke through some plateaus and stuff. And so then... But we, like, were putting a good chunk of that revenue back into like, all right, we need to like, just have more servers. Like if we can't make this more efficient, we have to like expand and, and basically throw money at the problem with more parallel compute uh, capacity.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, and that worked for a while, but then it was sort of, so we sort of reached the logical extension of that. At one point we had our database was on like the largest AWS instance that they will offer. <laughs> so it was, it was crazy expensive. I mean, we reached at the very end, I think it was like, I think it was like twenty thousand a month or something um, for this for this giant. Wow. Well, we had a giant server, and then we had a um, a read only replica, and then a backup, like a, a failover backup. So we had three of these kind of running, uh, and it was, uh, yeah, it was quite expensive. But <laughs> but we were sort of like I I remember being feeling particularly frightened at the point where we were like we were staying right up on the bleeding edge of ser- of large servers that Amazon offered. And I was like, this can't go on forever. We're going to have to like <laughs> pay down this like architecture debt uh, after a while. Um, I don't, know, do you feel like you have, do you feel like you have systems that are not prepared to scale right now? Or what are you, how are you feeling about like your, um, your sort of your infrastructure?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has been, uh, as you described where, it's really hard to predict the next fire, uh, yeah. and uh, JetBoost has gone through uh, some of those already. And I've learned a ton about uh, so so JetBoost the uh, the backend is Node, and I've learned a ton about running Node in production and mm-hmm. um, how to scale it. At least as far as <laughs> as far as JetBoost has scaled uh, t- as as of today. Um, But yeah, it's it's starting to reach the edges of my knowledge. So Mm -hmm. uh, last month I implemented a Redis like caching layer, which is great. It's uh, our main API requests, like 97% of the requests are now cached. Um, So, you know, removing all those database queries is huge for performance. But, you know, I'm like, okay, at at some point, like we're going to start pushing the limits of say uh, that Redis the Redis layer, or the database layer, or uh, the you know just the incoming server requests. And it's all running on Heroku, which mm-hmm. I put everything on Heroku because it's like at least in some senses like there's there's less things for me to worry about um, yeah. with with Heroku. But it's so hard to predict uh, what what the limits are. So right now we do a few hundred thousand API requests a day spread across all the sites that Jeppos is running on. You know, I don't know if uh, if we can handle right now with the current infrastructure twice that, or mm-hmm. ten times that, or fifty times that. We mm-hmm. just don't know. So it's it's it always makes me a little nervous waiting around to see. Okay, when is this going to start to break?
1: Yeah. How? What's your what does your instrumentation look like right now? Like, are you having? Do you have some dashboards that show you like? graph of requests over time and CPU load on your dynos over time, like where you can kind of see these, these things in one, one shot. What does that look like right now?
0: Yeah. I'd say it's probably pretty great, uh, pretty basic. It's the, the built-in Heroku monitoring, and then also uh, running new relic on that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, a logging layer too. Yeah. Yeah. That was one thing that I think I would have, been better served by having it in place a lot earlier, and I still haven't done this really with Savvy Cal, but I kind of need to. There's some telemetry stuff I can hook into in Elixir, I think, pretty pretty easily. But um, like, as soon as we, that was one of the shifts that we made when we, I'm trying to think when we did this. I think this was after acquisition, actually, when we were like working with some real like DevOps engineers. Like we, we none of us were like specialized in DevOps, which I think is yeah. kind of the right. I think it was still the right thing for us to be predominantly product focused but what that meant was we were kind of accumulating this like a form of technical debt on our infrastructure like we were we were smart engineers reasoning about how to solve problems but we weren't really like <sighs> We weren't breaking outside of our mold of like, maybe we should consider a Dynamo DB or some, or like Cassandra or one of these like high scale mm-hmm. databases that has a bunch of trade offs. When as soon as you start like breaking outside of the relational database <laughs> realm, the trade offs become crazy and they're really hard to, um, they're really hard to evaluate. It's so easy to make mistakes, um, on those yeah. things, which is where I would say like, I'm drawing the line for myself. I'm not if at the point where I have to like really start moving data into a specialized data store of that kind, um, I'm probably not the one to do it. You know, I'm probably going to try to get would try to try to get the help of someone who has a lot of experience in those um, high-scale database, alternative database type setups because you can end up with inconsistent data or just like I mean we're so kind of spoiled with our relational database systems where they're like very safe (laughs) and acid compliant and everything sort of always just works, but at the detriment of performance to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, like I would, I definitely would get like outside help on, on like, if you're thinking about potentially like a re-architecture that may need to come down the pipeline, like it might be worth consulting with, um, kind of a a DevOps engineer or someone who can like look at a system architecturally and at least give pointers. Like I think I probably would have been well served by doing that. And also getting like, just getting instrumentation, a a ton of instrumentation in place, like instrumenting the heck out of the entire app. And then Mm -hmm. even if I'm not using all that data all the time, like, um, like it was so helpful to have all that stuff when we, Uh, post-acquisition when we were really starting to experience a lot of a lot of scaling challenges and like it just it just helped give visibility into kind of like oh when this thing happens it's causing this other thing to happen and that's when this server starts to fall over is when this specific thing happens or when this customer tracks you know high volume of events it causes this this part to to break down and um i felt like we were like once we had the instrumentation in place, I was like, oh man, we've been flying blind. I mean, we just had kind of a similar (laughs) thing where it was like base, you know, instance metrics from Amazon and, uh, and new relic. I think we had too, but um, yeah, that, that will might give you some peace of mind that like, you're at least seeing, you're at least seeing your systems. Like you're getting a lot of data kind of that you can peruse over and you can watch trends over time. And that'll might give you a little bit more sense of like knowing what's What's potentially around the corner?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely have to look into that because there have been times where, like, spiky events have happened and it has really caused some slowdown issues and whatnot for the whole system. and uh, And I've solved a number of those, but those have always been based on my intuition and the fact that I have built, you know, ninety five percent of the code base and knowing, okay, yeah. like this part was kind of hacky and could be optimized and this is probably what caused, caused the last, ish, last issue, but I never know 100% yeah, uh, without right. some of that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Another thing that's like related to that, that has been top of mind for me is trying to reach the point where I don't feel like I need my laptop 24 seven, whether I'm oh, traveling yeah. or <laughs> 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 yep. have you gone through that?
1: Yeah, I mean every every SAS app I've had and Drip Drip was um I basically I almost never escaped that until kind of mm. close to the very end when we were um when we were acquired and kind of had offloaded all the responsibilities and we had pager duty rotations, like we had like this kind of more official um who's on call type of stuff set up. Um but yeah, I mean I'm similar to you right now where I'm uh, definitely not in the place where I can be more than, com- where I don't I don't feel like I comfortably be more than you know twenty to thirty minutes away from my laptop at any time. Um, right. So I think that is another yet another benefit of having kind of um, fully trained, um, you know, pretty much full time engineers. I've I've felt like in my mind it would be hard to say. I guess like if you have one, then I feel like you could set up like a. Trade off who's on call duty, and then once you have like kind of a team, just n number of engineers, then maybe you can cycle yourself out of that. Um, I always felt I would probably not feel great about like hiring one person and being like, "All right, you're forever on call." You know, <laughs> <Like> it's a <laughs> it's <allowed> lot, <laughs> yeah. um, and also like just yeah, being feeling comfortable, getting to the place where you feel comfortable with someone else being fully on call. That's that's a big, that's a big step, but I think it's I think it's a worthwhile thing to optimize for, honestly, and that is something I would definitely have done differently in the past, like try to get to the place where um, where people have enough knowledge where they can really troubleshoot things. And I think it's just, I think a lot of that is like writing down a lot more when when certain instances incidents happen where it's like, okay, this specific thing happened and here's the steps I took to mitigate it. Um, mm. And sometimes, whatever, it may just be like a manual intervention kind of thing. Like, yeah, we end up with, you know, Fifty thousand jobs, cash refresh jobs in the in the queue, and like those are really not that critical. So I can just delete all those jobs and and open up the back the jam, you know, like something like that. Where someone who's not really um, have a complete sense of how the system works wouldn't feel comfortable going in and deleting fifty thousand jobs. But you would if you just understand the whole system, you have all that context, you can be like, oh yeah, that's what I would do, and then it's it's mitigated. So I think like documenting a lot of those things where it's like. The things where you, you feel like you have a sense, because you know you built the whole whole system, um, and getting those things written down into like kind of run books that other people can use um mm. is is probably what it takes to do it. And it's a lot of work um to to document all that stuff. But I think it's yeah. probably necessary, you know.
0: Yeah, totally. It's again like if if I'm having a hard enough time getting, uh, you know, letting developers work on the core part of it, like mm-hmm. it's never going to get to the point where a developer would have enough knowledge to be yeah. able to troubleshoot uh, totally. these types of issues. Yeah. That's
1: so, right. Yeah. I think it's probably something that you're going to have to push yourself on to, to like get them. Like, I think you should probably think of it as the opposite. Like instead of saying, well, here's kind of a low risk task, go ahead and work on that. Like flip it, like put them on the, put them on the, like the most important, thing on the roadmap mm, and like mm-hmm. get them involved in that and even if it means like you're um you know you're pairing a lot with them or i'm, I'm not like i do a little bit of pair programming it really exhausts me and i, I so i probably wouldn't do a ton of it like <laughs> but um but just enough to like at least get someone kind of familiar with the code base in a deep way um synchronously you know um mm-hmm. and i think even if it means it's gonna take twice as long because now it's like someone new to the code base working on this thing, it's probably still worth it too. And they're gonna feel really good about that if it's like, this is like one of the most important things we're working on as a business and you're on the task, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. That's, uh, that's also something I've struggled with in general, hiring people. Uh, this has been a big lesson for me this year is really helping them to understand the importance of what they're working on and the value that they're going to deliver and get them excited about, uh, yeah, the fact that they are working on things that are really going to move the business forward and Mm -hmm. help our customers and all of that. Um, I think I've been a little bit too laissez-faire at times as far as like, you know, not wanting to push too hard on deadlines or, Mm -hmm. Um, be too rigid with the way that we work. And uh, I think some of that has been detrimental is just like sort of underselling uh, what, what they're working on and and how it could help people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think people do like a, people like working on impactful work. They like, Mm -hmm. they like to know when people rise to the occasion, right. When you give them a, when you, when you set the bar high on, on expectation or like, Like this is a, this is a critical feature. This is not just a low risk feature. Um, I think it, I think it kind of pulls people like people kind of, you know, metaphorically they straighten up their back a little bit and they're like, okay, let's roll up our sleeves and let's do this, you know, and I'm going to really try to knock this out of the park. I think people that's, that's what is motivating to an engineer. It's like, I'll give you a really juicy, challenging one to sink your teeth into, as opposed to something that's Mm -hmm. like... Easy. I think there's there's something to be said for like a few easy tasks to get warmed up. Um, we sort of had a uh, this rule when we would hire engineers that you would ship code in production on your first week, and we would we mm. like set that as like that's gonna happen. Whether it's like tweaking the you know fixing the padding on a button or something, or or something bigger <laughs> than that, it's like no, you will you will submit a PR, it'll get approved, you'll merge it, and you'll deploy it, and that's gonna happen, you know. Um, and I think people really. Like that because the opposite is like, Oh no, you sit through like a bunch of orientations, you do a bunch of like paperwork and then you, we have a bunch of calls and maybe you'll get to ship code in three weeks. Like, no, we orient towards action. And like, we don't want to, we want to keep this, this, uh, you know, lightweight and like, let you kind of do your craft as early as possible. Um, but then, you know, it's also like has to come with enough support where it's like, you know, you're investing the time to help them get up to speed. And you're not just throwing them to the wolves. That's the, that's how it can go wrong. <laughs> right. right?
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 I've, I've certainly been learning that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, what did your process look like uh, when choosing the tech stack for Savvy Cal? Cause I know you worked with, you know, you mentioned rails for, for drip and I know you worked with a number of different, different technologies uh, as you were building
1: level and static kit and some of your other products. Yeah. Um, I, so I learned Elixir basically after my time at drip, um, and I used it on level and basically all the prod, all the products I built since then. And I was attracted to it initially because it was like, uh, it was very, it was kind of Ruby ish in many ways, but so it was like not too far of a leap from what I had a lot of deep experience in, but it was a lot inherently a lot more, um, resource efficient. So like, Um, It's kind of built... It's built on Erlang. It's built for concurrency. Um, Erlang is, like, what runs the text messaging infrastructure on, like, for cell networks. Um, So it came out of the telecom industry. And so that was attractive to me because I had encountered so many... So many challenges, like just trying to scale Rails. I know that's that's the meme, right? Rails doesn't scale. Mm-hmm, or it really does, because mm-hmm. look at all these companies using it. And it's true, you can scale it, but it's going to be more expensive than other platforms. Like not all programming languages and and systems scale the same uh, with the same cost curve. So I just felt like um, that that was very attractive to me. Like it, it was a very it's a very performant language, and sort of addressed a lot of the. The weird parts of Ruby that I didn't like. Um, mm. it, they sort the language creator actually came out of the Ruby realm. I think he was on the Rails core team for a long time, and he invented uh, Elixir, the language. So he sort of knew all the ways that Ruby got was was problematic, and I think tried to address a lot of those too. So,
0: yeah. And then front end side,
1: I, yeah. On the front end, I also I really had to modernize my knowledge after Drip because we were sort of in a we had evolved the tech stack somewhat, but we didn't, like, we weren't using, um, like, declarative rendering front-end technologies at all, really. So we were still, we had jQuery still in our pipeline and uh, and had, for a period of time, we were using CoffeeScript. And then we kind of migrated off of CoffeeScript. Kind of shows you it's like a 2012-era application. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was also, like, if I look back on, like, the time... Between drip and Savvy Cal. I mean, there were some definitely some failed products in there, which was painful. But it was also like a, a time for me to kind of get brushed up on newer technologies. Um, so I learned React during that time, and I I love it quite a bit actually. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. using um using React on the front end for complex stuff, but then also keeping server side rendering um, around for certain pages where like like for example, I use this library to help with um uh, being an OAuth provider, so, like, for, for API access. And they mm. that library just gives me some, like, standard views on, like, this is the interface for creating and managing applications, and this is the authorization page. And all of that is just server-rendered HTML. So what I've, what I've enjoyed having is, like, the ability to say, like, I'm just going to use server-rendered HTML for these specific pages, and then on other pages, I'm going to just render a big React component. And so I sort of have the ability to... Um, to like pick the best tool for the job within the application itself and not like force myself into a single paradigm of like every single page has to be a React application. And um, so that's allowed me to move pretty fast. Um, I don't know if it'll stay that way forever. Like I might end up, I'm increasingly wanting like the entire front end to just be React because I'm building up like a a library of components and like I want to reuse those everywhere. And sometimes I'll bump up against a spot where like, oh, this page is server-rendered HTML, so I can't use, unless I want to like have a bunch of little applications on that page, like it's sort of inaccessible to me. So we'll see how it evolves. But at least at least in the beginning part it's allowed me to move really fast, which is important.
0: Yeah. I think I noticed Alpine JS as well.
1: Yeah. So the Alpine Except for
0: like the server side pages.
1: Um uh, yeah. So I'll use I'll use some Alpine, sort of like I think they their tagline is like tailwind for for JavaScript. So it's like you can you just put little inline like Bits of JavaScript logic to to add some dynamic stuff and yeah so I use that on the server-rendered uh, pages for little little things that don't need a full-blown React app and then I also use Alpine to initialize my React applications at specific points on the page so like Alpine makes a React render call to like render it into a div basically oh um, uh, okay yeah yep yep
0: cool yeah i've actually i've been exploring Alpine a little bit because it's it's a very interesting technology for webflow um hmm. because you can in webflow you can add data attributes to any of the elements directly in the designer and that's oh. all Alpine needs yeah yeah so trying to see if there's some cool stuff that can come out of that
1: yeah I bet i mean if you yeah I wish I knew more about Webflow I've been meaning to learn about webflow a little bit because um it seems to be. Really catching fire. Like, there's been so many attempts at doing what Webflow does, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. like, that I've watched come and go over the years, and Webflow seems to uh, seems to be here to stay and sticking around. So, um, uh, yeah. So I can't say I know too much about it, but it sounds like that make, could make some interesting like integration opportunities for for you as you're like layering on um, dynamic functionality onto Webflow, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Hmm.
0: Yeah. The. <laughs> the the tech of webflow from what i've seen just like blows me away the fact that it's all running in the browser uh i've i've spent far too many hours poking through their javascript and uh some of their debug tools that i've discovered <laughs> and things like yeah. that just to yeah. like understand like how this thing works mm-hmm. uh and it's i mean it's far above my uh skill set but it's it's really interesting to see
1: yeah that's cool that's cool
0: yeah um, yeah, getting pretty close to end of time. I, one last question I had for you is, so what keeps you up at
1: night right now with Savvy Cal? <laughs> oh man. Um, I would say, I think the biggest one right now this is very moment in time is, is churn that I alluded to earlier. And it's not like we have mm. out of control churn, but, um, if feeling like I don't understand why is really haunting me a bit. Um. And so I think that's something. So I'm looking at um, I'm evaluating Churn Key, which is a I think Baird Hall and he's a co-founder I think um, uh, created that product. But basically like like it came out of one of their other I think Wave, one of their other products. Like they kind of built it in house and now they've productized it. And um, so I'm looking at like adding that to the tool chain and then doing a bunch of kind of optimizations on on like trying to trying to elicit better feedback. actually I have my support rep uh, he has a little bit of extra time right now because tickets are a little slow so he's he's doing like a, a project going through and like cataloging like some some specific some basic metrics around people who have canceled when did they sign up when did they cancel how many links did they create how many events like I want to get a sense for like are a bunch of people like using the product in earnest for a while and then like they just something for some reason they decide to switch. Or are they just not getting activated? I mean, there's so many reasons why someone might churn, um, and mm-hmm. I'm really starting to feel the uh, feel the pain of like not understanding all of that. Um, and I know that's you know, like eventually, if you if you if growth rate stays consistent at a certain rate and churn stays consistent, you will hit a plateau unless you like move the metrics on one of those. Uh, so um, yeah, that's something that I'm definitely is on my mind lately. And and how long has it been since uh, you launched SavvyCal? We launched. Let's see. We we went, went became public uh, beginning of September last year, and then okay. we had like our big splash like product hunt launch. So we kind of sort of it was just like launched to the list and on Twitter for a few months, and then product hunt was what really like boosted our traction and revenue and everything. Um, and that was in January. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've seen actually some similar things on the churn side with Jetboost where it's been ticking up higher than I like the last few months. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I need to dive in and figure out exactly why. But I've also found, so March 2020 was when we really started to get an influx of customers and the growth rate's been pretty consistent Mm -hmm. since then. Uh, And so now it's coming up on, this has been the first few months of like annual subscriptions, having the opportunity to Mm -hmm. renew or cancel. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so yeah, it's, it's there's, there's always something it's like, it feels like the business is starting to work. You know, you're seeing growth, you're seeing people convert. Uh, and then over time, uh, as, as it goes on longer now, there's more people churning, there's more opportunity to churn. And, Mm -hmm. uh, then it's like, all right, now we're back to square one. Got to figure this out. Yeah. Mhm.
1: Yeah. That's the thing. Like it's there's always a there's always a new problem to think about or something to optimize in the business with SaaS. Like I, I mean yeah. There's no such thing as an autopilot at SAS, Obviously, <laughs> you know some people think think that's possible. And it's like no, absolutely not, because there's way too many things that change all the time. Each month looks different. Uh, I try not to obsess too much over like metrics and watching graphs, but I can't help myself. <laughs> I end up like kind of. It's so hard analyzing. not to. It's like why is this? Mo- why did this happen this month and not last month? What's so different about this month? Or uh, and there's still like we have a decent amount of variability right now in. Um, just like trial signups, like we'll sometimes I'll be at a certain, a certain level of trials and we'll hold that for a while. And then it'll kind of come down off of that for a little bit and then go back up. And, and I'm, I'm yearning for things to be a little bit more consistent. I mean, you look at, you look at more established uh, companies with much larger top line revenue. And like, generally the metrics are like, are pretty consistent. You know, it's like on average we get Mm -hmm. between, you know, 2000 and 2200 trials a month. And it's like very like, consistent. that's what I want to try to get to the place where like there's more flywheels that are producing consistent results, um, and consistent or growing and not going in the opposite direction, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's the tricky part right now at this phase is feeling like things, things move around a little bit. And one, one day I may look at things and feel like, Oh, okay, I think we're on the right track. And then, and then like, we'll kind of have a bunch of trials, not convert. And then like, so the growth, graph will just kind of level out and I'll cross below my profit well goal and I'll be like, oh, no, what's happening? Everything's the worst. Uh, and that the kind of, um, yeah, like it's not, it's not that healthy to be, you know, completely a slave to your, uh, to your MRR graphs, but it's, it's hard not to obsess over them. I still struggle with that.
0: I know, I know. Same for me. And especially not only obsessing over like just MRR, but the growth rate, Mm-hmm. which is even worse I think because what I what I have not internalized with SaaS is you know you you can have a slow month but you haven't lost all of the previous right. uh, uh, subscriptions right. that you still have like yeah it's cumulative you still have that baseline <laughs> yeah right. exactly right. Mm-hmm. and and you know still if if this month is slower than last month as far as growth like it feels crappy
1: <laughs> right exactly yeah yeah yeah, yep. yeah. well cool yeah, I think that's all I've got. Yeah, uh, all right. Thanks for having me. This was, uh, this was a fun chat. Yeah, super
0: fun to chat with you. And I guess uh, I have to ask the the podcast question that everyone
1: asks at the end, which is, you know, if people want to know more about <laughs> you or, or where can they find you? Yeah. So savvycal.com. It's the product that I've been mentioning here and there, and uh, and then I hang out on Twitter. I'm at Derek Reimer on Twitter.
0: Awesome. And I am a huge fan of SavvyCal. I'm a user myself, and it's incredible product so yeah highly recommend it
1: cool oh and i guess I, one, one other plug if you enjoy this podcast you might enjoy uh my podcast It's a very similar format uh, art of product with along with uh, ben orenstein of tuple yep definitely
0: cool all right man sounds good all right thanks for having me yep take care see ya